Here's Neymar now, Cavani is there. And Saint-Etienne has surely won it in the 89th minute. Calou for Cavano. Oh, what a strike. An absolute beauty for Florian Tobac. Kylian Mbappé wraps it up. Hello, this is Matt Spiro. Welcome along to another special episode of Le Bourgeois. This week we're going stateside to talk about the American players who have left their marks on French football. We'll be hearing from two stars of the United States national team, including this man who remains a much-loved figure in was, of course, Alejandro Bedoya, the midfielder who won over the hearts of the Nantes fans with his skillful, determined performances, as well as his tuneful singing. We're going to be hearing more from Alejandro a bit later, as well as having an exclusive chat with the former American captain, Carlos Bocanegra. This is Le Bourgeois, the official Ligue 1 podcast. Thanks for joining us. Please do rate us on Spotify, Deezer, Apple, or any of the other podcast platforms you may be using. I'm delighted this week to say that uh, alongside me, I've got two regulars again, Robbie Thompson and David Crossan. How are you guys? Hello, everyone. Very well, very well. Confine, I'm social distancing by myself here once again. <laughs> Good stuff, Robbie. We know you do respect the, um, the instructions. They are virtually alongside me here in Paris, as is a good friend all the way from Miami, Andres Cordero, who commentates Ligue 1 for Being Sports USA. Andres, thanks for coming. Bienvenue. How are you doing? Pretty good, all things considered. Thanks um, as the uh, dump truck passes by in the background. So if you hear a bit of a humming, um, <laughs> it's, it's early in the morning here in, uh, in Miami. Um, and yeah, social isolation is, is, uh, is a challenge, but try social isolation with two children under the age of three. That's where I am right now. I have no idea what oh, day wow. of the week it is. Okay. And I only know the time because we scheduled this meeting for it. <laughs> that's hats off hats <laughs> off andres that is full on <laughs> yeah well hopefully they're you know, they're, they're locked up somewhere in a, in a small cupboard or being well looked after by by their mother or or somebody else i'm sure that's the case andres let's let's just get into the uh the thick of the the discussion we're very curious we've been living out here in france for a long time working on on Ligue 1. we know that it gets it gets interest varying degrees of interest in in, in different countries what's it like in in the united states how is how is French football and Ligue 1 in particular viewed by the media and the fans out there? So it's a, it's a difficult um, question to answer because of how, I think, uniquely competitive the, the football market is in the United States. I would argue you can watch more football for more countries, even just divisions within a country. Like if you wanted to watch Ligue 2 in the United States, you could. If you wanted to watch the uh, Spanish Segunda, you could. And so I think that um, competition makes it, a bit sort of parsed uh, people's interests. So I think the king of American um, TV broadcasting is actually the, the Mexican uh, Liga MX, right? You've got a population um, that's almost 20% Hispanic in the United States. It's like 59 million people, which is pretty much the population of Italy. Uh, more than 60% of that is, is or 60% of those Latinos are Mexican-Americans. So that's another almost 40 million people. So you've got Liga MX and then everything else, right? But then you can parse everything else as well because the Premier League is king among English language commentary just by the sheer volume of 
um, just subject matter that they put out. You can get more coverage in English of the Premier League than virtually anything else. I think after that is where you have uh, MLS has grown, but it's a little bit regional. And then when it comes to European football, you've got Ligue 1 competing with Bundesliga, um, the Serie A, and La Liga. I think Paris have obviously raised the profile, uh, a lot more eyeballs on Ligue 1 because of PSG during the QSI era. Um, Lyon, for some time, were, were quite popular. I think you still see, you know, out in bars, watching games, people in OM shirts, OL shirts. Um, so I would say it's there. It's in that tier uh, below uh, in terms of interest, below League MX, below Premier League, maybe slightly below Major League Soccer that has grown a lot and sort of, you know, rubbing elbows with La Liga and Serie A for that, that next spot, that next dominance. It's interesting you say, you, you talk about Mexican football and I think over here in Europe, we maybe don't realise, I know that Andre Pierre Gignac, the former Marseille yeah. striker, has just become an absolute phenomenon over, over in Tigres. And when Guillermo Ochoa used to play in Liga for Ajaxio, we would commentate every single Ajaxio game, essentially for, for, for the, the, the Mexican-American market. And that, that was absolutely fascinating. I just got a question for you because um, your, your appearance on this pod has sparked interest on, on social media. And we've had quite a few questions that have come in. And George Rodriguez on Twitter would like to know, which league and team do you support, Andres? Or perhaps do you like it? It's not an easy question for a commentator. No, it's not. And actually, I, I know that no one is going to believe me, but I don't have a, a dog in the league on race. Um, I, I really am the Eduardo Galeano, the, the great Uruguayan writer that said, I'm a beggar for football, just begging for like a pretty pass. That's, that's my approach to league on. I don't have a favorite <laughs> team, even though I'm technically employed by the same people that own Paris Saint-Germain. And so I, if I cared for my employment future, I should really prop up PSG. But I'll, I'll be honest, I don't have um, a, a dog in the race. I, I love attractive football. I tend to lean toward the teams that, um, that are more daring, um, even if it's like daring to a fault. Um, so I, I don't have a particular club that I support. But when there when they're Americans involved, I guess I'll have a little bit of a closer affinity. So let's go with Lille for now, with uh, uh, Tim Weah being the, the next great hope uh, for American soccer and French football. But if you asked me a couple of years ago, it might have been Nantes for Ali Bedoya. Um, it might have been uh, San Etienne for Boca Negra. Well, that's interesting that, that, that you say that. And you bring me nicely on to, to Timothy Weah, because we had another question about him. That's come in on Twitter from Corey Michael. I'll put this to, to, to Dave to start with because I know Dave's commentated a fair bit of, of Timothy Weir, what we've seen of him initially at PSG and then at Lille. So um, Corey Michael asks, do you see Tim Weir breaking into the Lille starting eleven or regularly being in the, uh, in the match day 18 when he's fit? A lot of American fans are excited about him. We want him to be involved in the 2022 World Cup. We're a bit concerned about his injuries and his development. What, what do you reckon, Dave? Absolutely. I, I think he's been a major loss for Lille. They were counting on him to fill that right-sided attacking role vacated by Nicola Pepe when Pepe joined Arsenal. And he's got the attributes to do it. Uh, his problem, inevitably, is the family name as well. When he is fit again, he has to try and live up to those incredible standards set by his father, George Weyer, at Paris Saint-Germain, now president of Liberia, George Weyer. But the, the problem with Timothy Weyer is the injury because any player who has that fast twitch muscle and starts getting hamstring injuries, you start worrying for their future. And he was operated on by the same Finnish surgeon who operated on Usman Dembele, the former Ren player who's now at Barcelona. And he's now recovering in the States. And Lille have said that even with this delay to the season, they're not counting on him for the rest of this season, no matter when it starts up again. So we won't be seeing Timothy Weyer sadly again 
until 2020, 2021, whenever that happens. I, uh, I have something to add on, yeah, on the Timothy Weyer situation because I, I spent a, a, a couple of seasons with Timothy Weyer when he was at PSG. I interviewed him a couple of times. I was around the squad as well. And I think something that Timothy, because I never really saw enough of him, uh, he's got a couple of goals for, for PSG. He scored in the Trophée des Champions a couple of years back as well. Um, he never really got a chance at Paris Saint-Germain, but it's very difficult for, a, for an 18-year-old, a 19-year-old, who's not a proven international star to really get that chance at PSG. But something he did have, and I think this is somewhere, and obviously it doesn't replace minutes on the football pitch and, and talent and all of this, but he does have a lot of experience from European football, from big clubs, and, and this sort of European global football aura, which could be very important for America, just because he was brought up in it. He was brought up around that AC Milan side when his dad was even, he was a bit young maybe to remember when his dad was such a great player, but then moved to England was it was when his dad was at Chelsea, grew up in the Paris Saint-Germain Youth Academy around these players. And yes, the name Weyer could be a difficult one. Your dad's the president of a, of a country. It's, it's not an easy one to, to, to wear and carry on your shoulders. But if you can turn that into something positive, he has a lot of experience and, and can help other players understand what it means to be a big player in a big football club. I think that's important. Yeah, if I could just the kickabouts in the, the, Sorry, kick Andrew, in the uh, gas have been quite fun. Sorry, Dave. Yeah, I was going to say, um, well, we saw Moussa Dembele and Odson Edouard both had to leave Paris Saint-Germain for their careers to flourish. And they did that initially by going to Celtic, where Weah had a, a brief loan spell and we were expecting this season with him leaving Paris Saint-Germain that this would be the season that Weyer would have that sort of Dembele and Edouard-esque transformation so it's really sad that it hasn't happened because of the injury. Just let let, let us know Andres what what the situation is a bit with the US uh, national team at the moment and whether Tim Weyer um, you know could have a, an important role to play. Personally I think it's good that he took the decision to leave uh, Paris Saint-Germain when he did because you know, Robbie alluded to it. It's hard for a young player. I mean, he's not going to get game time ahead of Neymar, Mbappe and, and, and Cavani. He should get game time at Lille. You know, looking ahead to that World Cup, do you think it's, you know, is, is he an important figure that people are looking to? So one of the positive things about his start with U.S. soccer is he debuted at a time when U.S. soccer were at a real low point, obviously having missed uh, the last World Cup. And so um, American, the, the national team was trying out a lot of young players. And so with Tim Weah surrounded by other young players all eager to prove themselves. I think the, the, the tension, the expectation is a little bit lower than it otherwise would be. Um, and so it was probably a good way to like ease him into it. And he looked dangerous enough. I think he will be, I think he'll play a role for, for us, uh, for the U S national team at the next world cup. Not whether that's a starting role or, you know, a, a supplementary role. We don't know yet because we don't know what kind of player Tim Weah is going to develop into. He's still just 20 years old and, Depends a lot on his speed, his athleticism, um, his acceleration, and he he's he creates chances. So he only played six games, I believe, for Paris Saint Germain. But I, I called maybe five of those games, and in every single game, he at least created one chance, one breakaway where he was through one v one against the goalkeeper. And just a guy who generates that kind of danger consistently is going to have a lot of value for the national team and obviously for his club teams. I think the most encouraging thing about where. It's not his last name. It's not his background. It's that he has the Luis Campos seal of approval. Um, after just six games with Paris and obviously playing for the, uh, the, the youth teams, Luis Campos sees something in him. And if he sees something in you, that's usually a good sign. He's one of the best sporting directors on the planet. 
um, and they paid around the same amount or put in the same investment that they paid for Victor Osman. Uh, granted, you know, contracts sort of factor into that price or whatnot, but it shows that they at least had some serious um, uh, interest in him. And so I, I do expect him to break out um, for the U.S. national team, but I don't know if that's saying much right now because it's a low point for, for U.S. soccer. So if he can't break into this team, that's going to be pretty discouraging. Uh, there's just one thing I want to add here because Tim Weah is the only U.S. international in league on at the moment, but there's one other, at least one other American uh, currently in the French top flight. Uh, it's uh, Jordan Siabachu of, uh, of Rennes. Remember, he was a standout at uh, Reims in, in league to help them uh, mm -hmm. climb into the top flight, immediately jumped over to Rennes where he's been sort of sporadic in terms of his minutes, but he was born in Washington, D.C., uh, U.S. soccer reached out to him. He said no at the time because he, he was young. He was trying to break into the starting 11 at his club side. But last year with Greg Berhalter, the new coach of the new manager of uh, the U.S. national team, he started to sound a little bit more interested. And so I think there's a chance Siabachu ends up being the second active U.S. international in, uh, in the French top flight. Okay. Yeah, that could be interesting. I, I, I liked him as a player when he was a youngster coming through at rounds. He's, he's had a few injury problems with, with Wren, but I think he's got the, the sort of raw materials to be, to be a top striker. We've had some players in Liga, some Americans who have enjoyed success in, in the past. And Robbie Thompson has been out and about in his, in his living room, in his kitchen. He's, he's been working hard this week to track down these Americans. And he managed to get hold of Carlos Bocanegra, uh, the former Wren and Saint-Étienne defender. Premier League uh, supporters probably remember Carlos from his, from his time at, at Fulham, but he was very fondly remembered, is very fondly remembered here in France, as is Alejandro Bedoya, another player that uh, Robbie spoke to, a current US international who had three seasons at Nantes between 20, 2013 and 2016. And uh, one question that Robbie put to them was uh, just what's it like for, for American players, perhaps who've played in, in the MLS, who have played in... Um, less fancied leagues coming over to a top European league and having to, to try to prove themselves as uh, American outfield players. So let's hear from Carlos Bocanegra first and then Alejandro Bedoya. Goalkeepers were really the only ones who had kind of yeah. broken through and had any kind of career in Europe. So I think that was anytime you're American and you were playing overseas, it was more, yeah, look, guys, we can, we can hang here. We can, we can play with you. Um, you know, you fast forward. Now you see the likes of, uh, Weston McKinney, uh, Chris and Pulisic, uh, and, mm -hmm. and others that are, are doing great job field players that are, you know, really excelling and thriving in, in top European clubs. So, um, it was, yeah, it was more, you know, we're out there trying to still trailblaze and, and, and gain respect week in and week out. Um, and, you know, uh, hopefully just kind of creates that pathway for more to come behind you and more opportunities. I think throughout my whole career, I've always had to prove myself and prove to others, you know, uh, even, you know, here in the system, the way it was back then, it's still is similar, you know, with college coaches, recruiting players. I have tons of emails still, like where I was trying, you know, applying to certain schools that I wanted to go to. And, you know, I was too small. I was uh, not fast enough for the position that I was wanting to play, um, you know, and not strong enough, you know, there's all these ridiculous things. And it was always about like, all right, here I am. I'm playing against you now and I'll show you what I got <laughs> or what I can do. So that, that's always been instilled in me, you know, my work ethic and stuff like that. So yeah, that was part of it in France. And like I said, French people are more introverted. Um, that was kind of how the locker room was. Like I said, we had, I was more kind with the foreign guys, the international players and the other side of the locker room was all the French guys and we knew each other and spoke a lot, French a lot more fluently. Um, so yeah, it wasn't until like my first goal away at, at Ajaccio, um, 
uh, where all of a sudden a couple guys that I, <laughs> weren't speaking English to me at all started opening up and speaking English to me. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I mean, you did know how to speak English. You're just being really shy, you know, you know, introverted, whatever it is. I was like, that's fine. But, yeah, I always, everywhere I went, every club, you know, it's, it's always about proving yourself. And I'm fine with that. I think that's the way it should be, you know. Mm. Uh, it should be merit-based and not just because uh, um, somebody paid a certain amount for you or, you know, you're making so and so much money, you know. If, if you're showing every day, week in and week out, that you deserve to be in the starting lineup, then that's that's what it's like. And you know, training sessions are always going to be like that. You know, you never want a young guy coming in, and I'm like that now as a veteran. <laughs> <laughs> you're coming in, you better prove yourself, or you're trying to get by me, or you're trying to nutmeg me. The ball might go by me, but hey, I'm making sure you're not going. You know, like it's, it's that competitive nature. I've always had that in me. So yeah, and then there's that aspect of carrying the American flag, right? Because I think there is still that stereotypical kind of trending. Mm. Americans aren't, you know, known for soccer, so to speak, or the best technical players or this and that. So you really have to go out there and, and prove that. And, and, you know, I was representing America, you know, I feel like the only kind of American player at that time when I was playing there. So yeah, I'm exactly. going to put on for my country, you know. Well, Robbie had two very interesting in-depth chats with uh, Bedoya and, and Bocanegra. If you want to listen to those interviews, the, the, the entirety of those interviews, you can find them on our webpage. You just need to search Le Bourgeois or official Ligue 1 podcast on any of the podcast platforms and you will find us some, some really interesting stories. And we're going to bring you uh, one of Bedoya's stories right at the end of the pod when he reveals how his coach at Nantes, Michel Desacarian, managed to injure himself during a fit of rage inside the, the, uh, the Nantes dressing room. It's a, it's a very amusing story. Meanwhile, any questions, do fire them in. Um, we, we love receiving your feedback, league1podcast at gmail.com or use the hashtag Le Bourgeois on, on Twitter. So, Robbie, enjoyable chats. Um, certainly sounded like it with Bocanegra and, uh, and Bedoya. How did, you, how did you manage to set these interviews up and, and how did you find them? Well, um, Carlos Bocanegra, I've known for over a decade now when he first arrived in France. And I think it's the same for all of us. And, and Andres said as well that an American playing in France is interesting. We enjoy that as well as journalists here because it's, a, it's an English-speaking player who's arriving in the, in the, in the, in the championship, a, another one we can get interested about. We know that it's going to bring a, a shine a little spotlight on Ligue 1 as well. So it's all good for us. And I was working for the league at the time and there were two Americans um, in Ligue 1 at that time in 2008-2009, Charlie Davies and Carlos Bocanegra, and they were playing each other in the cup. So I went to Sochaux and interviewed Charlie Davies and then went to Rennes for the game in the cup, where in the end Charlie Davies was uh, injured and didn't play and Carlos Bocanegra was rested from the cup game. So I travelled all the way to Rennes for Rennes versus Sochaux, the, the US derby in, uh, in French football and neither Americans played but I had a long chat with Carlos there and uh, we stayed in contact more or less. He commentated games with me when he'd come to Paris when he didn't have a game in midweek and, uh, and since then and I've watched him and, and chatted to him while he's setting up Atlanta uh, United in, in America where he's now vice president of Atlanta and they won the, in their first season the MLS. Um, in those two grabs that we just heard, they both talk about what it means to be an American, how they've got to be enthusiastic, how they're, they're, they are flying the flag. I think it comes across in their interviews as well. They love talking about it. They're, they're proud of what they achieved it going to a foreign league. I think they're both proud of the fact that they came to France as well and didn't just stick to England or Scotland or, or Sweden, but came to, I mean, England's the number one league probably, and, and both players said that, but 
but to come to France, one of the big European leagues, it's a it's a great sign for them of what they could achieve. And I think they both learnt an awful lot playing in France, but they're very enthusiastic, enthusiastic with their time. They tell lots of great stories. They love their time in France. And have a listen to the to the interviews because, as you say, uh, uh, Alejandro has a couple of great stories and Carlos as well about their time in France. Andres, what, what, what's um, the situation with, with Bocanegra at the moment? He, Robbie, you said he's vice president. I saw he was technical director. He's obviously got a very high position with Atlanta United, um, whatever that position is. Well, um, he is Atlanta United, basically. <laughs> he is Atlanta United. And he's, um, yeah, he's, he's, he's apparently doing a good, dro- a good job. I, I assume, you know, he's a guy who won 110 caps for the uh, US national team. I assume, Andres, he's, he's highly respected out there. Well, not just that. I actually think his post-playing career is setting up to be as impressive or more impressive than his playing career was. And we're talking about one of the, you know, better US internationals, definitely one of the best uh, defenders that, that we've had. Um, in definitely in modern um, American soccer. And now you look at a guy who Atlanta United was an absolute phenomenon. I mean, this, this team took the league by storm and he's not just played uh, a, a pretty important role within that administration, but he's grown um, very, very quickly because he was initially sort of technical director, uh, signed an extension with them that also made him vice president. He's now taken on an administrative role um, as well with U.S. soccer, which is something like the co-chair of the technical development committee, which I genuinely have absolutely no idea what it means, uh, but it sounds important. <laughs> and it's probably something that you want in your, in your resume. Um, so I think it's obvious that he's far from done with the game. And I suspect that he will eventually become one of the most important people in U.S. soccer. Um, the fact that he played uh, and, and, is, and is taking this trajectory now sort of sets him apart from a lot of the people at the top of the, the U.S. soccer sort of corporate structure. Um, and so he's, he's a highly, highly promising, um, still young man um, who I would not be surprised to one day see as, you know, U.S. soccer president or something more prestigious along those lines. He's definitely on that trajectory. That's really interesting. And I'm not actually that surprised having watched him and uh, witnessed sort of not just his performances, but the way he carried himself. I think in the French League, when he was at Rennes, he played in a team that had some really technical players like Mikel Pagis, who uh, was, was a, a poor man's Cantona. He had a bit of Eric Cantona in him. He had Jerome Leroy in the team. But I just think in terms of you know, his discipline, the way he carried himself, both at Rennes and at Saint-Étienne, I think Carlos Bocanegra probably um, did bring a lot to those clubs. And uh, Robbie asked him um, about you know, why he thinks he was a success in France and, uh, and what he brought to those teams. I think what you get uh, with the American players that, that kind of head over to Europe, you're going to get that workmanship, the work mentality, putting in the, you know, whether it's in the weight room, on the field, off the field, um, taking care of ourselves uh, really well, physically fit. Um, and so, you know, I think it's something where a coach can count on you that they know what they're going to get out of you each time you step on the field. Um, and then you, know, you go over there and, and, and you blend it in and you have a mix with you know, some uh, able to play with some really, really talented guys of Blaise Matuidi at Saint-Étienne, Dimitri Payet at, at Saint-Étienne, like, you know, just really top world-class players um, that, you know, as an American, my job was, you know, win the ball and give it to the good guys, man. So <laughs> let, let, them go do, let them go do the business. But, you know, I think it's something where um, uh, hopefully – what I would what I would like to think is that uh, as an American going over there, the coach knows what they're going to get out of you week in and week out, uh, and they can count on it. Well, Carlos, he learned a lot in France, but he was a player who 
who was brought in to play European football. It's something he says in the interview that he never experienced in his five years at Fulham, where they, they were always trying to avoid the drop. Wren gave him the opportunity to take that next step up. And as you say, Matt, he was a, he was a very solid defender, as Andres said as well, one of the best American defenders of the modern era. But he was alongside a big Swedish defender, Petter Hansen, in that Wren side. There was Rod Fanny there as well. They had, it was a very solid defence. They were one of the best defences in the land. Over those two seasons, Guy Lacombe was replaced after his first season, replaced by Frederick Antonetti. It was a, a different style of coaching as well for Carlos, but as one of the more experienced players and international, I think he had a lot of respect from people looking to him as well. Bruno Cheru was in that side, who'd come back from, from Liverpool to play. There was uh, the, the other young boy... Uh, Yannam Villa. Yannam Villa coming through midfield. No, Stefan Marvo, Sylvain, Sylvain Marvo as well, was in that Ren side. So he, was good, he was a really good player before he got those injuries. Fantastic player. They had a lot of that, that quality, and Bocanegra was an important player in that, both on and off the pitch. They, they finished, I think in the end, they finished seventh or sixth or seventh in that first season where they just missed out. They finished three points off Champions League football. That's how close they, they forced it. They made the cup final. Bocanegra scored in the cup final against Gangon. Um, bitterly, well, Carlos says it's one of his greatest memories of playing in France, but I think probably it's one of the most bittersweet moments as well because he scored the opening goal in the cup final and then they, they managed to lose to not only derby rivals but who were in the second division at the time in Gangon. So a, a tough pill to swallow. But uh, he had, he was, he's an underrated player because he's a central defender by definition, I think, but he had an excellent career here in France and, and everywhere else he went. Well, he's made a good impression. And more recently, Alejandro Bedoya made a, a really good impression at Nantes. Uh, again, not just the way he performed, but the way he carried himself on the pitch during, during those, or off the pitch as well, during those three seasons, Dave. And what I really liked about both of the interviews that Robbie did was how honest both Bocanegra and Bedoya were in appraising their careers. They know their strengths and they also know their limitations. The Bocanegra talked about giving the ball to the skillful players. He, he knew his role in the team. It was about being fit, being an example. And Bedoya, I felt a bit sorry for him at Nantes, really, because in a more expansive mm. side, I think we'd have seen more from Alejandro Bedoya than he was able to show because Le Canary at that time uh, had good results off an early season but before fading away, but they didn't score many goals. And even though Bedoya told Rob that he wasn't a natural goal scorer, we do remember him as the the American who scored the most goals of any American ever playing in the French top division. And he scored some spectacular ones against big teams. Uh, what I found was I didn't really know, even when he left after three seasons, what his real position was. Yeah. And that might partly be to do with the way Nantes was set up. That, I think, like a lot of players, possibly his best position would have been playing in a free role. But Nantes was all about discipline and all about working for the team. So often he was having to play on the right-hand side in midfield, even as he mentioned in the interview, uh, against PSG playing as a wing-back. And um, yeah, so I, I found it frustrating, less so in terms of what he produced, but more in that I would have liked to have seen him play in a, a slightly better calibre team and able to attack more, the, the, seeing the spectacular football that Andreas mentioned earlier. I think you're right also to to point out that Bedoya was, in his time in France at least, a bit of a victim of his own utility, his own versatility, the fact that he can play in a, in a variety of roles. Mm -hmm. I think something similar has happened in Spanish football recently with, this is a, a very sharp 
uh, veer to the left, um, but with Saul Niguez at Atletico Madrid, right? A guy who could be one of the best in his position um, if he were playing regularly in one role, but instead is being moved around, playing left back and whatnot. I think Bedoya played as a fullback at times, played as an, more of an attacking midfielder at times, more as a holding midfielder at times, um, as opposed to a specialist where he can really be continue to develop um, in his position. He also um, is still playing at a pretty high level now at 33 years old. Uh, Bedoy has been with the Philadelphia Union in, in MLS since he left Nantes in 2016. Uh, still comes across, I mean, footballing aside, uh, comes across as one of the most intelligent, one of the most likable players in all of American soccer. Um, had a, a viral moment uh, after scoring a goal last year. Um, there were these two horrific shootings in two different ends of the country. And after scoring a goal, Bedoya grabs one of the field mics and pleads with Congress to pass gun legislation, which I thought was just an absolutely boss move and, and something that was needed at the time. He's always had that sort of conscious um, intelligence about him. Um, and I think you see it on the field as well, the way that he can adapt to all of these uh, different roles. Um, I don't think he's featured for the U.S. national team since around 2017. He was part of the side that won the uh, Gold Cup, which is our Euro, um, except it's basically us in Mexico. Uh, he, he won that one, and I don't think he's featured since then. So he definitely hasn't featured with this uh, new manager. And I think he, he turns 33 later this month. So it's a question as to how much longer he's going to be playing, especially with the physicality. Of, of Major League Soccer, but I remember uh, seeing the images of his time at Nantes leading uh, the Nantes supporters in chants that would then become sort of American soccer chants, uh, and that was such a, an incredible move, moment to see, and granted it's not necessarily with his play, but, but to see an American have that influence on a team in one of the top European leagues was just a, a moment of immense pride for anybody who cares about American soccer. Yeah, totally. Because he's going to a totally different culture, a totally different league, and he's managing to sort of inject some of his personality and his culture into that. I agree. It was brilliant to see. And he, and, and he was really, really popular. If you want to listen to more um, from Alejandro Bedoya or Carlos Bocanegra, do go to our platform, Le Bourgeois, on all of the uh, different podcast places. Um, I always say Spotify, Deezer, Apple. They're the ones that I know best. But you can find us everywhere. Do rate the uh, the podcast. Um, we're absolutely delighted to have Andres Cordero um, with us from uh, Being Sports USA in Miami, and uh, we will be um, talking about the tops and the flops, the, the the other American players who have who have played in the French top flight. But before then, um, a little interactive uh, moment for you. It's going to be our deja vu because we need to give the answer to the last deja vu, where uh, you, our beloved listeners, have to. Um, try to guess who we're talking about. So the last one was last time um, we did this. I started my professional career in Europe, in Greece, and then played in the Netherlands before moving to France. I played for two clubs in France, one being Monaco, and I won four Ligue 1 titles. My nickname is Gilla. That was a tough one. But then the nickname Gilla, for me, that, that gave it away a bit. Um, listen, Adam Cyrilnik has got it right for the third time in a row. So you know, congratulations, Adam, but we do need some, some other people. He knew that it was Mohamedou Diara, the brilliant Malian midfielder who was part of that exceptional Leon side um, in particular. So we've got another Deja Who. If you think you know the answer to this week's um, puzzle, please do get in touch using the hashtag, look, no, using the hashtag uh, Deja Who L1 on Twitter or by emailing in the League One podcast at gmail.com. So, uh, so here we go. I was born in the south of France, but I had to go to Lens 
in the far north to make my league on debut. I've played for Nice and Rennes, and I had two spells at Marseille, winning the Coupe de la Ligue twice. I am now making an impact in the MLS. Now, if you think you know the answer, hashtag DejaHuL1 on Twitter, or you can send us an email, league1podcast at gmail.com. Once again, producer Ian has gone with the big clue, I think, right at the end. Dave, tell us a little bit. Can I, can I add a clue? Can I, can I just add an yeah, extra clue, it. Matt? Because I think I know who it is. Did I also uh, ruin one of the greatest league on goals of all time with a, with a goal line clearance? <laughs> does, 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 does that... Is that him? Yeah, it is I him. Yeah, it, I think yeah. it was. Yeah. yeah, okay, good. And you've already good. mentioned him on the pod. <laughs> it's almost well, there you go. too much. Now let's move the focus back to our uh, American friends. And uh, Dave... You're going to give us a bit of a bit of history about the uh, the Americans, the first Americans to come and uh, and play football in France. Joe Gatchins is, is a name that probably still sends shivers down the spine of any Englishman because he scored one of the most sensational goals in football history at the 1950 World Cup. It was the first World Cup that England had bothered entering. They, they didn't. They saw the World Cup as beneath them until then, and they were rather complacent about it. And Joe Gatchins, who had already played for Haiti, where he was born played for the United States and scored the winner in Belo Horizonte, finished 1-0. And not long after that, he came to France and played for Racing Club in Paris, also played for Alice in the south of France. Now, scoring a winner against England is quite a good way to make yourself popular in France. So I'm sure he was very, very popular. But he, he didn't stick around for too long. And then he, he finished his career back in Haiti, but uh, had a tragic end to his life because he, he was arrested and... His daughter, Leslie, is convinced that he was killed the same day that he was arrested in the mid-1960s. And so she thinks he died at the age of 40, but he'll be remembered forever for that goal that he scored against England at the World Cup. But Dave, was he better than Sig Torsen, who is the Icelandic player who knocked England out of Euro 2016 and played, and played for Nantes? Who was uh, better, Gatchins or Sigtorsen? I haven't seen too much video of Gatchins, but I'm going to say Gatchins. Well, we haven't seen much of Sigtorsen either. No. <laughs> the, the stat that I'm most dubious about that came out was that apparently Sig Torsen had the fastest sprint at Euro 2016. And I, I just don't believe that. I, I think their, their speed gun wasn't working properly. Uh, but and were there any other, any other Americans, I don't know, in the 70s, 80s? Yeah, there's an, an interesting case, which was David Regis, or David Regis, if you want to pronounce him in an Americanized way, who was born in Martinique, the French island, but was eligible the United States and played a lot of times for them but uh, he turned out for a lot of clubs in France played at the 98 World Cup and played all three group games also went to the 2002 tournament qualified for the United States because his wife was an American citizen and uh, he did good things for the United States at a time when the game was growing his professional know-how from France really helped that's good. That's good. That's good. It's good to know. And but he played over three hundred games, didn't he? Is that in league out? I think so. Yeah. Pretty impressive. Pretty impressive. A, a, a man who didn't play as many games as maybe um, he would have liked, and it would have been nice to, to see him play more at Social. You mentioned Charlie Davis, Robbie. Uh, you went to interview him at at, at Social. He, I, I liked the look of him when I saw him in playing. Of course, he had a, a a tragic life event when he was involved in a car crash. Um, back in the United States. Um, 
what did you what did you make of him as a person and let's just hear a bit more about his his career and what's happened to him well he he arrived he left america and 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 went i think first to sweden where where he played there and then he was looking for a for a move and he got this move to sosho that's where i i met charlie um again another really down to earth enthusiastic guy i remember he telling the story that his dad was from gambia and one of his great teammates in that sosho side was uh, Dudu Fatty, Jacques Fatty, who was a uh, Senegalese. And when I, and actually Jacques Fatty was there during the interview because he, he spoke very good English and the two hung out just the whole time together. And, uh, and they had this like running battle between Gambia versus Senegal for this Frenchman and this um, an, um, an American. And, uh, and he was starting to make an impact at Sochaux. I think it was under Francis Gillot, who was his coach mm-hmm. at the time in that first season. And he was given his chance. He he offered them something because he was he was small, compact, very quick, explosive off the mark, and that's something that and that Sosho needed. Um, and he was he started to score a couple of goals, and then of course he was involved in America. He scored, I think, a fantastic goal at the Azteca Stadium. Maybe Andres can can fill us in on that one. He scored an important goal against Mexico during this season, and then they qualified for the World Cup. And then he was involved in this fatal car accident where he was a passenger. In the in the back seat of the car, uh, and he doesn't remember anything. He woke up with tubes in his stomachs. I read that he he said that it, when he when he woke up, he thought so, he'd been involved in he'd been drugged and kidnapped, and someone had stolen all his organs because he didn't had no memory of this car accident whatsoever. He came back to Sosho, and I spoke to him again, uh, probably about four months afterwards, when he was starting to come back, and he was saying. I feel good. I'm I'm nearly a hundred percent. I'm scoring goals in training, and whether that was just him as a striker and needing that confidence, um, he never got a, a look in at Sochaux after that. There was a change in coach. Eric Eli came in, um, never gave him a, a chance. He he moved. I think he moved back to Sweden or to Denmark. Maybe I think he maybe Danish football. And there he 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 just never was the same. Charlie Davies. Again, came back to to play in America, finished his career in America, and I think fortunately, I heard Carlos told me that he's still involved in in the MLS uh, at the yes, moment. Under he's that. he's had a bit of a resurgence actually. Um, fairly recently, he's popped up as a, as a media figure um, in Major League Soccer, and I mean, having interviewed him, you know, he's got sort of an infectious personality. He's a guy you want to be around, who's just seems happy and appreciative of everything, and so I think that that's coming through now in in his broadcasting where he's really uh, just propped up his reputation significantly as a guy that people want to hear from when it comes to Major League Soccer. I actually interviewed um, both him and Boca Negra uh, shortly after, when he had just returned to the national team camp after Davies' injury. If you hadn't heard the, the extent of that injury, which, by the way, happened in October of the first season that he was at Sochaux. Um, so it really did come at the worst possible time for a player who was on the rise, not just having made that move to Sochaux, but um, the national team was starting to take interest. He looked, he was in a position of need for U.S. soccer. And when you mentioned that he was explosive and had great acceleration, he had all of that under control as well. It wasn't one of those things where he's kicking the ball out in front of him and sprinting toward it, um, but he had just a, a, a high, a good technical quality that was just sorely needed on the national team in attack at that time. And then the extent of the injuries, I I wrote it down because it it really is impactful. It's a lacerated bladder. Uh, His leg was broken in two places. He fractured his elbow. He had multiple facial fractures and there was some cerebral hemorrhaging. Um, So he's got a scar on his head that still marks it. uh, And it completely knocked his career 
off path. And he played for years after that. He did come back. He, you know, he did get in shape, but it just, the trajectory was never the same um, after that uh, accident. He ended up playing in MLS, didn't make a, a huge impact um, for the latter stages of that. Um, but now he is, once again, as you mentioned, um, popped up in, in the media circuit and, um, we're just really, it's, it's nice to have him back because you just wonder, you know, what could have been for a guy who was destined to be a pretty significant part of the national team and just never, never materialized. I think it's, it's, was, we uh, often, I, I, sorry, Matt, we, we often think, you know, what a shame there was this, this injury, this player missed out on what could have been, but perhaps we should celebrate the fact that he's still alive and what a miracle that is. Well, I, I was going to say, you know, it's, it's, it's sad for Charlie and for his career, I think our thoughts should should also go to the family of the lady who lost her life. You know, what was a horrendous, horrendous uh, accident. Um, you talked about his technical skills, Andres. One young American who had phenomenal technical skills as a boy turned up in France. And Dave's going to tell us about him, Mr. Freddie Adu. Who spent one year on loan at Monaco from Benfica in 2008-2009. Now, William Shakespeare apparently wrote King Lear during the plague. And I've been using my time in lockdown uh, to try and get a little bit more creative. So I've come up with a poem about Adu's 12 months in the French game. So this is a world premiere of Much Ado About Nothing by David Crossan. Ready, steady, Freddy. A teenage star in Monaco. But you were neither ready nor steady. When the loan ended, you had to go. A prodigy, the new Pelé, some said. It didn't happen for you wearing red. A star so young, globally known. It seemed a coup to get you on loan. You didn't score in nine league matches. Of your talent, not even patches. Fans didn't know what to think. They hoped you'd be the missing link. Monaco wanted to break the American market. Instead, they swept your move under the carpet. You're still only 30. I wish we'd seen more. Your career, peripatetic. At Monaco, pretty pathetic. I have just one question now. Where are you, Mr. Freddie Adu? Wow. Congratulations. Dave, I didn't know you had these talents. Uh, I was inspired by our good friend Chris Burke, who is a football journalist and poet. But um, there we go. I, I this is not one Fred- sometime. <laughs> Officially, the most highbrow uh, sports podcast, just all of sports uh, you'll ever find now, adding this sort of uh, literary this, class. This is going to go crazy. And, you know, when Freddie Adu retweets us as well, um, Andres, what, any idea? Where is Freddie Adu? No, none. I, I think he is now former <laughs> professional footballer, uh, Freddie Adu. He hasn't, uh, he's not on a uh, roster anywhere. I don't think he has been since 2018. He had a brief spell um, with the Las Vegas Lights, which is. Um, lower league um, uh, American soccer, and he has not uh, popped up anywhere else uh, since then. You know, it's he became um, a punchline for overestimating uh, young talent when it came to American soccer. Uh, U.S. fans were still thirsty for a proper star, for somebody who can, who could penetrate. And here comes a kid who at 14 years old is drawing comparisons to, you know, not the best player of the moment, but Pelé. I mean, for Christ's sake, it's, it was, uh, it was so much and it was so obvious that it was so much, but um, people just sort of jumped on the bandwagon. And by the time he, he got to Monaco, he was 19 years old, which is still an extremely young player, but he'd already played five seasons of professional soccer. Most of that, obviously, Major League Soccer with DC United didn't last very long at Rouse Lake. And 
it's just the pattern repeated itself everywhere that he went. He got there with some fanfare. There was some buzz about him every time, slightly less than the time before. Uh, he would get some opportunities to play early on and then just sort of fizzle out to obscurity of the team, jump ship, go somewhere else, rinse and repeat. Um, and I think if you watch him uh, dribble, if you watch him juggle, he looks he, he looked like the most technically gifted player of that time for U.S. soccer. But it's not how you do those things in space. It's how you do those things under pressure. And Freddie Abdul was never convincing um, in those sort of competitive environments when you had to, sure, you had to, you could do the tricks, but can you do them when you're being closed down by one or two players? Um, there, there was a tendency always to give the ball away. And so I think it was always more mirage, more media, more hype than, than the actual football that was there. He's a player that sort of, he looked good doing things. You ever see these guys? Um, I don't want to use, have them been out of as an example, but they're guys who you watch them play and you're like, this guy's yeah. incredible. He's the best player on the pitch. On YouTube, he's not, they're amazing. He's yeah. not actually doing anything, you know? Sorry, go on. I think when I was growing up in the, in the 1980s in England, one of my favorite footballing cliches about these well-traveled players was he's had more clubs than Jack Nicklaus. And <laughs> as a golfer, you're allowed to carry 14 clubs in your bag. And I think... Adu had exactly 14 clubs, so he had as many clubs as Jack Nicholas. Not bad. I'm still well, getting over your, your talents <laughs> as a poet, Dave, honestly. <laughs> I, I had no idea, but I, it must have been incredibly hard for him because he was, yeah, like you say, he was hyped up. He was the next Pele before he'd actually done anything. And, you know, I know that the, the US hype machine can be pretty powerful. And like I say, Andres, they needed, they needed the next sort of big star just to, just to bring you back in again Andres about about the MLS because we are seeing more and more French players and French managers moving over we saw saw Remy Gard at Montreal Thierry Henry is is there now got Johan Dame who is the uh, caretaker coach at Cincinnati um players Henry and, and Yuri Djorkaev towards the end of their careers Mikel Silvestre as well and I think there are currently 11 players 11 French players in the uh, in the MLS are they are they helping the league are they getting much um much much coverage out there andres what's, so what, what's of, the deal of the of the 11 um that are currently in uh, mls um the probably the most recognizable would be rod fani uh, just because of his time at om and because he's the one i believe the only french international on that list of 11 players so if you want an idea of sort of collectively what kind of impact they might be making i mean per transfer market they're valued at a, a combined 4.2 million euro Right. So it's not a, when you can spread that out among 11 players. That's not a lot of guys who, you know, league on clubs are desperate to bring back. Um, I, I a lot of these guys, I'll be honest, I, I've never seen play or if I saw them play, I didn't notice them um, in MLS because they do tend to be sort of squad players. Um, one guy stood out, stood out to me because he played at my alma mater. He played where I went to, to college, where I got my broadcasting degree. And that's uh, Paul Marie, which I hope I'm pronouncing correctly. He's, uh, he's an FIU product who was drafted by the San Jose Earthquakes. And he's been in San Jose in MLS since about 2018, uh, right back for them. He jumped out at me just because we sort of shared uh, the same school. There's a, a few more um, recognizable figures. Um, the ex-Gangamp um, winger, Nicolas Benizé has propped up in Major League yep. Soccer. Um, Aurelien Collin is a really interesting one because he's jumped around a bunch of different clubs in Major League Soccer. He's a former uh, Sedan youth. He's with the Philadelphia Union now, um, but he spent some time in like Kansas City, Orlando City, uh, the New York Red Bulls. And so there are no you know, proper stars among this group, uh, MLS-level stars, uh, but 11 is actually, I think, significantly less 
than the previous season. So they must have shed mm. um, quite a few players from the 2019 campaign. Yeah, because there have been good players in, in the recent past. I know Benoit Sheru yeah. is now retired, but I mean, he was a good footballer. And maybe they're not high value players um, because they're coming towards the end of their careers. But Roman Alessandrini is another one who, yeah. who I think made a pretty good, good impact out in the US. I mean, he was a starting player and a strong player with uh, Bielsa at, um, at Marseille. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what did he make of Roman Alessandrini? Did he do well? So he actually jumped straight from OM um, to the LA Galaxy in uh, 2017 uh, he actually uh, did quite well he had two seasons there but uh, had a pretty bad knee injury in the start of season number three I believe and then that forced him to miss most of 2019 he's now playing in China so so he's moved on from major league soccer uh, two seasons and a couple of games and he was a pretty uh, permanent fixture um, for uh, the LA Galaxy out wide uh, just a guy who had, you know, good control, could play uh, well on the wings. And I think in terms of, you know, recent seasons, probably the Frenchman to play the most um, out of this entire list of players that we're talking about uh, was uh, Romain Alessandrini. Yeah, good left foot on him. It's interesting that we've um, spoken to Carlos Bocanegra and he has he has uh, Florentin Pogba, the brother of Paul yeah. Pogba, who's a Guinean international, um, played a lot in France here with, uh, with Saint-Étienne. Notably, and uh, Robbie was asking Carlos about um, maybe whether you know whether other French players should be looking to the MLS, moving out there, helping this league to develop. Um, here's what Carlos, the um, the technical director of uh, Atlanta United, had to say. Yeah, I think when you talk about like a Jorkayev, that was uh, a little while ago, maybe mm. you know, 10, 10 years plus when the league was still kind of uh, getting its feet and finding its way, and you had some older veteran European players coming over at the tail end of their career. Um, you know, now you're getting a lot more of the, the mid-20s um, guys coming over and, and making a big impact. And do they translate? Yes. Do they, you know, they transfer well? Yes. It's, you know, I think as long as they're, they're getting in an environment where it's conducive to their talents and their abilities uh, and they're put in the right system, 100%, because you, you see the athleticism, you see the, the technical ability, um, you see their game understanding, their, their tactical understanding, and just like we talked about, their formación. So, you know, they have a really good base. Um, and then, yeah, getting in, in and around a good team. But uh, Benize, where was he at? Gang Gangle before? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right? Yeah, he freaking scored against us in the uh, <laughs> the conference final last year to tie it up uh, for Toronto. So, um, no, they're, the guys are coming over. And, you know, I hope that we can continue to be a destination for French players. Um, because I think, oh, you know, we had, we had a... Pogba, Florentine Pogba as well yep, for us yep. last year. He did a, a really good job when, when he was called upon. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, it, it is a great destination. I definitely have my eye on on that market. And, uh, you know, it's just the ones that are obtainable and the ones that uh, will fit uh, the style of the team. I think it's a great option these guys and for and for the clubs here well i know that carlos is keeping one eye on the on the on the players in france and ones that can head over there but i think there's also france is also showing more and more in in other european leagues and perhaps in america as well in north america that their coaches can can do something i think there's an interesting uh comparison to be drawn or rather opposite perhaps to be drawn between thierry Henry and patrick vieira because patrick vieira is currently in france and making a pretty good fist of what he's doing with Nice, who are a club that are that are growing pretty fast, and he's he's adapting and bringing what he's learnt from America. For Thierry, it was more or less the other way around. He was an assistant coach with the Belgian national team. He got his chance, 
got fairly badly burned at, at Monaco and is now bouncing back in, in America. I like what Patrick Vieira's doing here, and I think he's, he's showing influences of his time in the academies at Man City and then at the first team of New York City and positive influences from what he learned in, in American football. What's Maybe Andres can fill us in on how Thierry's going in, in North America. Yeah, to me, this is a little bit of uh, sort of the right example versus the wrong example, right? And we talk about they did it differently. I think one did it right and the other one is sort of trying to make up for what he did because I, I can't imagine anyone <clears throat> sane thought it was a good idea for Thierry Henry to take over that Monaco side at that moment, you know, mid-season, having shed all the players that they had with, you know, clear uh, sort of fundamental issues in that squad. Um, and so it just looked like the most obvious example of a manager being set up to fail. And maybe, and this is obviously just an educated guess, but maybe um, Thierry Henry's ego getting the best of them, thinking like, I can do this, you know, I've been there. Um, where you contrast that with Patrick Vieira, who, uh, who was um, for you know, a handful of seasons at New York City FC, garnering attention from clubs in Europe, clubs outside of MLS that wanted to sign him, but he knew or at least felt that he still had some growing to do. Now, whether that was loyalty to the organization going back uh, to Manchester City or really just waiting for the right moment, the right opportunity, the right club to ask for him and to continue to develop as a coach. I, I think you see Patrick Vieira sort of a, a reasonable, rational ascension to taking over a league on club, whereas Henri seemed to think he could just sort of walk in and get the job done. And the feeling around Henri, I did so many of those, as you guys did so many of those Monaco games <laughs> um, for, for being sports, where it did feel as though Thierry Henry was having trouble maybe understanding his players, understanding why they weren't as good as he was, why it was so difficult for them to do the things that, that came so natural and so easy to him. And those are the sorts of things that perhaps somewhere where you know what the limitation is, you know, for a smaller MLS club or somewhere where you're expected to, to have a bit more trouble in that department, you come to the realization that, wait a minute, they're not me. They're not Thierry Henry. They're not uh, an elite footballer. So I have to teach more than just sort of manage. Um, now he's, at, I think, at a place where he can uh, get that, that experience, where he can maybe gain a bit of humility as a, as a coach and almost start over um, because I'm not sure how much you could have possibly learned from that uh, spell at Monaco. I, th I think you're talking a lot of sense, but listen, Andres, I'm going to defend Thierry because actually I, I was one of the few people who thought it was a good move. I thought, you know, he's a Monaco legend. You got peace and quiet down in Monaco. They were doing awfully under Jardim. They had, you know, what I thought was easily a good enough squad to, to push up, finish, finish top 10. I don't think I realized at the time the, uh, the depth of the problems at the club. And I totally agree with what, with what you say, Andres, about the way Thierry managed he you know he still looked like a player in many respects he couldn't kind of like take any distance from from the from the game he was on the touchline shouting at at everybody and yeah probably he is going to to learn a bit more like the basics of the of the actual job and maybe there is a you know a question of, of, of humility I think it's something that gets thrown unfairly at him often but Gary Neville has been saying recently you know that he was not sort of humble enough he thought he could go to right. Valencia and just sit you know he knew but he hadn't learned the job and uh, Thierry, Thierry is, is, is doing that now. And, uh, you know, I, for one, hope, hope, to, to, you know, hope he does well. Hope to see him back in Europe. Is he, is he raising the profile at all? Are people showing big interest in the States with, with him at Montreal? So th this is a really um, important season for just for MLS all around. It's their 25th um, season. 
Um, there's a lot of so new clubs like uh, Inter Miami that just launched with David Beckham, uh, part owner Thierry Henry being a, a manager in the league is obviously you know a huge deal, and I think people will tune in just to see what Thierry Henry's project looks like. But it was interrupted after two games, right? So the season, which is not on the same calendar as uh, European football, uh, kicked off two weeks in. It's basically an uh, indefinite standstill, and we have no idea when it gets back underway. So we'll see how much that enthusiasm from the start of a new season, the fact that we're building up the 25-year anniversary, how much that'll carry over to when this gets back underway. But I do think there's some curiosity and some interest there because Thierry Henry is just one of those universally beloved players in American soccer. You will not find anyone that follows MLS that have a negative thing to say about Thierry Henry uh, during his playing time. Um, with New York or just anywhere else uh, in Europe. So I, I think he's going to be just a, a net positive, whatever happens, even if it goes spectacularly wrong. Um, he'll have drawn some attention to a team that, that probably needs it. That's not a, a, a market. It's not in the United States and it's not a market um, as big as some of the top teams in the league. And so having Thierry Henry there is a huge, huge coup for them. Well, thank you, Andres. You've, uh, you've redeemed yourself. You've said some nice things about Thierry, which means we are... <laughs> Going to invite you back on, on the pod whenever you want to come. That, um, you were listening to Andres Cordero, the uh, play-by-play uh, commentator for Be In Sports in the USA. You can follow him on Twitter, at Dre Cordero. It's been a, a pleasure having, having you on the pod today. Before we go, um, we're going to just play one of, uh, one of the stories that Alejandro Bedoya told, told Robbie. Perhaps you can introduce it, Robbie. Uh, give us a bit of context here about his coach at Nantes. Okay, well, this was Ali, uh, who, well, his coach for all three seasons while he was there was a, a man that we know very well called uh, Michel Dezakarian. Um, he's a, a stalwart Ligue 1 coach and Ligue 2 coach. He was brought in at Nantes by Valdemir Kitter when they were in the second division to try and bring them up. He's a no-nonsense, old-school coach, um, all, almost exclusively 4 Always bien en place, as we say. Now at Montpellier, he's changed his, up his formation a little bit, but the the bien en place, well set up, well structured, is uh, what Michel Dzakarian is all about. And when things don't go according to plan, he can get uh, a little bit irate, which I guess is partly his job as coach. And and here's one of those moments. Well, talking about Michel Dzakarian, I'll tell you a funny story about <laughs> Bordeaux. Uh, we were up two zero at home against them, and then. In the last final three, four minutes, I guess, like 89th minute and like 93rd minute, you know, something like that. Bordeaux tied it 2-2. Oh, my gosh. He <laughs> completely lost it in the dressing room. You know, throwing everything, going crazy. And then he kicks the garbage can. And whatever was, there was a rod in the garbage. So he kicked it so hard that this rod, it was, he didn't see it, obviously. He ended up hitting the rod that just poked through the, the garbage bag cut a hole in his leg it was just bleeding this thing got infected he ended up at the hospital for like a month we had we had to go um bruno the assistant coach became our coach for like two weeks what a fantastic story from alejandro bedoya and uh, the, the 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 funny thing is i mean it's not funny because he hurt himself quite badly but you can just imagine that happening can't you michel desacari and when when things go wrong for him he gets the red mist and uh, and i do remember that time him missing matches for this mystery illness or injury no one quite knew what happened Alejandro Bedoya has has revealed all and uh yeah lovely lovely to finish Dave Dave's keen to um to to bring us up to speed because we missed one important figure didn't we Dave 
Yeah, we did. We missed the former US men's national team coach, Bob Bradley, who almost got Le Havre promoted to Ligue 1 from Ligue 2 in the 2015-2016 season, having taken over in the November of that year. And they were so, so close, just pipped in the end on the goal scored by Mets to third place in the league. Um, he didn't stick around for very long, though, because he was lured away by Swansea City of the Premier League, where he didn't last very long either. But it was a bit of a shame because that was a time when Le Havre might have been going places under him. And I, I can't remember exactly when we thought Adriano was going to sign for them. And then that didn't quite happen. Adriano looked about twice as heavy as he was in his golden years at Inter Milan. But I'd have loved to have seen him playing in the French game. And as it is, uh, they're sort of faded into the background again since Bradley's departure, which is a bit of a shame. Yeah, good manager, Andres, and, and I guess still very highly respected over there. Can we expect, you know, more, more Bob Bradleys or more, more top players to come over? We love, you know, we love having some Americans over here in France. But the, there's a, the Red Bull coach, the, uh, the American at, uh, at Red Bull in the Champions League was doing, has done a fantastic job this season. Uh, Jesse Marsh. Yeah, Jesse Marsh yeah. is sort of the, the heir apparent to, to Bob Bradley's mantle. And, you know, we don't, believe, we don't believe in kings in America. We had a war about it. But uh, uh, Bob Bradley is footballing royalty for American soccer. Um, to, to have, I know that it flailed spectacularly at, at uh, Swansea, but to have reached uh, interest from a Premier League club was a huge, huge deal. And I recall when he signed at Le Havre, obviously uh, BN Sports is the exclusive rights holder for uh, Ligue 1 and the uh, Ligue 2 in the United States. I remember running into the offices of the traffic people, the people in charge of making the grids of what goes on air, and just excitedly, like out of breath, saying, you've got, I know we don't put Ligue 2, uh, Ligue 2 on the uh, normal channel, but you've got to put it on. It's Bob Bradley. He's, gonna, he's making his debut. It's going to be a big deal. And we were following that so closely. And to see him come that close uh, to promotion to Ligue 1 was a really, really big moment. And uh, for, for me, a huge source of pride. Anytime I see I guys like this, just like when they were showing uh, Jesse Marshall, you mentioned, in his uh, halftime talks of Champions mm-hmm. League football, that means so much to American soccer fans to see those accents reflected in the game abroad. It's just a big deal to us. But I do love the fact that somewhere in an office in Miami, somebody was running up a corridor trying to get, <laughs> trying to get a Ligue 2 match on. Live it's on fantastic. television. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant stuff. Brilliant stuff. Thank you very much, Andres Cordero. Thank you, Robbie Thompson. Thank you, David Crossan. It's been, it's been great fun. Just a, a quick reminder, you're listening to Le Bourgeois. If you want to hear those full interviews with Alejandro Bedoya and Carlos Bogenegra, do um, log on to, to our platforms, a little search for Le Bourgeois um, or for the official League Gun podcast on any of the platforms, Spotify, Deezer, Apple. Um, we are there. We welcome, of course, your, um, your loyalty and we do love it if you, if you can rate us or send us a, a quick message to uh, leagueampodcast at gmail.com. Any questions, send them our way. I hope you've enjoyed our American special um, on Le Bourgeois today from everybody here in Paris, in Miami, in, uh, in Normandy, around Europe. It's uh, time to say goodbye and we'll see you again soon. Au Bye-bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. Kalufa Kamado. Oh, what a strike. An absolute beauty for Florian Toma. Oh, the pass is brilliant for Pepe. Toma. The Saint-Etienne has surely won it in the 89th minute. My head. Oh, what a goal. Kylian Mbappe wraps it up.